Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo of Tales by Bob. And this week, I'm excited to have on Lauren Connolly. Uh, Lauren was a recommendation to me from one of our uh, other interviewees. And I'm just super excited to, to, to get you on today. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about Southern Fried Fantasy. Yeah. So let's, uh, you know, I don't like to waste time. Let's dive right in. So if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what ties you have to the South. Okay, sure. So I I actually, I did grow up in the North, uh, so that I am yeah. a Southern transplant. Yeah. Um, but I, my mother's side of the family is from uh, Virginia and West Virginia. So Mm -hmm. all through my life, I was always making trips down to those areas. Um, And I I distinctly remember though, one time finding out that my grandmother attempted to join a group called Grits, Girls Raised in the South. And they told her that Virginia was just too North. So- Wow. I I don't know if that that claim to the South counts or not. It does. It definitely does. And that's something that uh, now there there are places where I will draw the line. I had someone try to make a compelling argument that Oklahoma counted. Oklahoma does not count. Um, <laughs> but uh, every, you know, a lot of people will say, no, Florida is not the South. Florida is the South. It's just a different kind of South. You know, uh, Virginia culturally is different from Texas, which is different from Florida, which is different from Arkansas. You know, it's all the South. It's just different flavors. Yeah. And I've definitely noticed that because now I currently live in Northern Georgia. And I would definitely say that where I live now is different than what I experienced in uh, Virginia, but still there's, there's the connections there. And so I I've been living in Northern Georgia for over it's been about a year and a half now. So, um, and since I moved here, I was inspired by the area to write stories. So that's why I have, uh, some stories written in the South. Yeah. And, uh, I I always really appreciate when we get someone on here that is not originally from the South, because I think getting a little bit of that outsider's perspective, but someone who has also lived here, I think, I think that that gives us a lot of interesting insight. So definitely nothing, nothing to be ashamed of to not be from the, (laughs) not be from the South. All places are great. Um, This, this one is just about the South. That's the only thing. So, uh, so why don't we, uh, to start things off, why don't you tell us about your books? Um, Not necessarily the ones that are in the South, just let us know, you know, all of your books so we can get a good picture of what you do. And then, you know, let's let us know which ones are uh, more Southern. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, I am my I am primarily a romance author. I write uh, paranormal romance and contemporary romance and I have multiple series out. I both self-published books and I have published uh, with some small presses. And I, my books take place kind of all over the country. Uh, they're often inspired by places that I've lived or visited. And I'm just, I'm a big fan of Happily Ever Afters. And I also like, I like to switch back and forth between contemporary and uh, paranormal because it kind of cleanses my palate to go from uh, the different types. But I definitely started out as, when I was younger, a, a fantasy paranormal reader. And that slowly transitioned into me being a fantasy paranormal romance reader and then into a writer. So um my series that is uh, magical and set in the South is my Folkhaven series, which mm-hmm. I created a fictional small town in Northern Georgia based on a fictional lake. And um, I am, I have three 
I have uh, book one in that series is technically a novella. It's about 40,000 words. So you kind of like back and forth if that's a novel or a novella. Yeah. Then I have two more books and one coming out this October. And I have like a smattering of short stories that I've given away for free in my newsletter and one that's going to be in an anthology. So that's just, it's been a really fun world to build. And I'm currently, I'm hoping to have, right now the plan is to have about 12 books in that series. So I'm just working through that one and making the world even um, richer with every book. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. That's the series that caught my eye when I was perusing your, your website. Um, And I, so this is, I I love books. Uh, Like it's very much, I don't want to say a trope, but I guess like a trend and especially like the paranormal romance series, but like, but really just anything kind of like in the urban fantasy realm where uh, there's a lot of alliteration in the titles. And I love that so much. I don't know why I can't put into words, but uh, I just, <laughs> I, I really love books that do that. That, do that. that, that is, yep. That's my bread and butter. Just every, every title. Um, and oftentimes even the places within the books, like I've in that series, I have a, a coffee shop that's called, uh, coffee and claws and they make bear claws there. I just, yeah, oh, alliteration. I just gravitate towards that. Yeah. For those, if you haven't seen it, like we're talking titles like seduced by a selkie sucker for a siren, swearing at a sea monster shelter for a shifter. Like I, I just love all that so much. <laughs> yes. I will get away from the S's, but the alliteration, it's going to stick around. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, and so outside of that series, so this, I know this one's not set in the South. I saw it was set in Phoenix, Arizona, but this has such an intriguing premise to me. So I'll, I'll be upfront. I don't read a lot of romance. Um, okay. And so uh, that's more my fiance's realm that she, she's all in, all in on that. But what is it? Is it uh, fire magic ice cream? Is, was that the, Yes, yeah, fire, fire magic, magic and ice cream. And ice cream. <laughs> that has such an intriguing premise. Uh, I I just love it so much. I, I'm just going to read the blurb, just a part of the blurb, real quick, because oh, I just love this so much. But uh, Quinn Bryn, or Brian, Brian, uh, Quinn Byrne, Byrne. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, Quinn yeah. Byrne <laughs> is rare even among fire elementals. Fire element. Ugh, fire elementals with her powers hardwired into her arousal, she can't. Uh, touch yourself without setting the sheets ablaze. Uh, and so like, literally she's hot stuff, you know, <laughs> and just the, the implications therein, and just, uh, it's such a, such a cool, neat concept uh, <laughs> for a romance series. Like, how do you, how do you, I, I don't want spoilers, but I'm just saying, you know, in general, like, how do you, uh, how do you write that? And just the fact that you've done is, I find that super impressive. Yeah. So that one, it's interesting. I, um, a lot of times how ideas come to me is it'll be maybe like a strange situation that I'm in. And then like a whole story will sprout from that, or I'll just get a random scene that kind of pops into my mind. And usually the scene or whatnot will be, it can happen anywhere in the story, but this scene that popped into my mind ends up being pretty much the first scene in the book, which is I had this vision because I've always I, I have um, multiple books that I love where uh, women have the ability to control fire, like uh, Kristen Callahan's Firelight and Sharon Shin's uh, Mystic and Rider. I loved um, those books. And so I, I always wanted to write a book where this woman could control fire. And then I had this image of this woman just sprinting through a house uh, in a toga of bed sheets that are on fire. And she's not scared. <laughs> she's just pissed off because dang it, it happened again. She set the sheets on fire because she was just trying to have a good time. Yeah. And she has to just cannonball into a pool. And she's like, dang it, I can't figure this out. And so, and and then from there, I was like, well, who is going to be just the worst person for her to fall in love with? Oh, I know a guy who makes ice cream for a living. And so I that's just it. kind of, it just steamrolled from there. Yeah. L- literally steamrolled. Uh, exactly. <laughs> No, I, I love that so much. Uh, uh, it, I, like I said, I, I, I don't read a lot of romance and I haven't read any of your books, but that one has 
it's definitely caught my eye and I think I'm gonna have to dive in on that uh maybe one for me and the fiance to read together uh because <laughs> I, I hope you enjoy it it's, it's yeah <laughs> yeah so uh with your because while we are southern fried fantasy we definitely you know um we love all books here <laughs> so uh tell maybe tell us a little bit about your contemporary romance while we're here because there's a lot of overlap you know uh, that people who read paranormal romance there's a lot of overlap but they, they read more conventional romance so i i would hate for someone to miss out on a intriguing pitch Sure. Yeah. Well, I do actually. So one of my contemporary series is set in Louisiana. Um, The first two books are, and the second book is both uh, Louisiana and Tennessee. And that series, it's called Forget the Past. And that one was basically, um, it was, if you've ever heard of the show Pitbulls and Parolees, um, it's, it's basically about the uh, the heroes in the first two books. They are both um, uh, out on parole. They're ex-cons and they're working at a animal rescue. And mm. so it's the story of them uh, falling in love um, with their partners. And so that one was they were they're set in uh, New Orleans. And uh, I visited the area and <laughs> I visited the area in July. So it was just hot as yeah. be and muggy. Yeah. And I have, or I had a friend who was living in the city working at an animal rescue and just uh, hearing about her time on the job and, uh, and then being inspired by that city. That's kind of where that series came from. So that, that one is uh, one of my contemporary series and the third book in it is coming out next month so the first one is rescue me the second one is read me and the third one is resist me just kind of stay on theme with the r's (laughs) Um, yeah 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 so that's uh and then i have a a college romance set in philadelphia because i'm originally from delaware and philadelphia is a big city up there and uh and yeah and then i have uh, some more i give another college romance called uh, alliteration again uh, love in the library <laughs> that one <laughs> gets sent to my newsletter subscribers and that's just an enemies to lovers where they're battling over the best uh seating area in the college library because <laughs> <laughs> that's what i felt like i was always doing i was like i gotta get that chair before anyone else does it's like well yeah. that can be a romance yeah so uh you're you're an animal lover yes uh, definitely and so when I was doing my research on you I saw a line that I had I had to ask he says that you have a dog who thinks he's a troll yes <laughs> so I I have a dog his name is Giles if you've watched Buffy the Vampire Buffy, yeah. Slayer yeah <laughs> uh-huh. um I, so something else I also have a degree in library science and I worked as a librarian so love me some Uh, pop culture librarians yeah um and so he he was a rescue dog and if you've ever had rescue dogs you know they've got weird uh like personality quirks and so one time i was on a trip with my family and i was sharing a bedroom with my brother and i went up to bed with my dog and um i'm i'm passed out asleep and my brother comes upstairs and he he's he was telling me he's like it's it was so dark in the room and i just hear this rumbling growl and i he's like i didn't i couldn't see your dog anywhere <laughs> i didn't know where he was and eventually he sees him sneaking out from underneath my bed like this guard <laughs> troll that was guarding me while i was asleep so now, from then on his name has uh his nickname has always been troll he's the he's the troll because he guards me from underneath the bed just growling at anyone who comes close i love it i love it uh yeah we've got a couple of uh we got a we we adopted a couple of cats uh uh like middle-aged cats so you know they were like five or six when we got them kind of set in their ways and had developed uh, a number of quirks along the way so i definitely can attest uh yeah they're they're interesting sometimes they're frustrating but you love them oh yeah yeah oh absolutely Uh, i have to shut uh the office door when i record these interviews because uh otherwise uh one of the cats office cat parker um has will sleep all day until i get the microphone out and the moment (laughs) i hit record is when he's like "Ooh," 
is today a yowling day or is it today a chew on the cord day? So it's really, <laughs> really just a crapshoot as to what he's going to, how he's going to harass me while I record. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like someone wants their own podcast. Oh, he, oh, he does. It would be, it would be riveting, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, alas, we, uh, I, I feel like he'd probably just chew through the microphone cord and we wouldn't get anywhere. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so what is an element of Southern culture that you kind of felt like it might've been important to showcase in your works and how did you go about doing that? Yeah. So something that um, I really, I, I felt like I was getting uh, senses of it when I visited this area. And then when I, I started living here was, I know that it's very common uh, when people write uh, Southern romances to do the small town type setting. And I definitely, I wanted to do that, but I wanted to do it right because, so where I grew up, it was, it was a suburb of a city. So mm-hmm. it, there was no um, connection to the area that I moved up in or grew up in. When people talk about their hometowns, I don't really have um, a connection to mm-hmm. the area. People ask me where I grew up. I say, oh, Wilmington, Delaware, kind of. It was a suburb. Uh, we just lived in a cul-de-sac. Um, yeah. But here, when you get into these towns, one of the things just, just this, so the setting um, really inspires me down here. This, the fact that uh, not everything is all smashed together. There's space mm. between places that allows these towns to create their own personalities and traditions and things along those lines. And what I thought, what I think is really interesting about these towns, um, especially in these rural areas, is the, the dueling nature of wanting to kind of maintain a connection to the roots and to the founding and the foundations of the town but also needing to figure out ways to keep the town surviving and thriving. And so this kind of, um, and so that's what I wanted to be happening in this paranormal town that I made, because basically this, this town called Folk Haven that I made up, it was created around a lake that these mythical creatures actually built they uh they built a dam I, I looked up I was researching dams in the area and everything and I, yeah. I I have a um a fascination with the lakes down here in in northern Georgia and southern Carolina yeah. uh, South Carolina and um even in Virginia too and so basically the idea was that they built a dam to create a lake and they were creating that lake to uh drown out this twisted evil magic that had been uh, soaked into the land. And the only way to purify that was to create a lake there. And then, but they wanted to reclaim this area. So they made the lake and then they made this town. And so there's this town, Folkhaven is the town and it's on Lake Galen, which is, uh, I get into the kind of um, the history and the mythology of the town in uh, book two, Sucker for a Siren. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the town, I wanted to have that kind of dueling nature of there are the the mythical creatures that have been here from the start. There's like the founding families and there's this mythic council that is all about um, trying to maintain the integrity and the safety of the town because the town is not cut off from humans. Humans are allowed to go into the town. And in my world, humans don't know about mythical creatures unless they're like the special ones that are in the know. But then there's also the fact that this town needs to interact and needs to needs to uh, move on with the times. Uh, so the young mythics don't leave for the city. So they have uh, they have this um, drive to stay in the town and help it improve. And then there's also I have conflicts uh, where there's there were divides that were established uh, between different mythic groups when the town was first founded. And then there's people coming in questioning why are these divides here? Why do we do it this way? And so I, that was kind of um, something that I've, I've noticed. I, I live uh, near a, a small town right now. And uh, just we, we are, we are the new people coming in and we're kind of 
like, why isn't there a brewery here? What if we want What if uh, oh. someone wanted to open a brewery and then we get into the, the whole, oh, well, you need to go through this and this and this and this because they want to make sure that you're not just uh, throwing a bunch of new things in this town that'll ruin it. And so it's yeah. that was kind of um, me as an outsider coming into a, a small Southern town. I was seeing that kind of uh, push and pull between those things of both wanting to um, keep the town how it is, but also needing to figure out how to make sure that that doesn't cause the town to die off. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's something that I don't think gets enough attention. Uh, and it's, it's very real. Like, so I've, I've lived in Alabama my whole life. And, um, while you do have, uh, a certain proportion of like the people that I went to high school with that were, uh, more than happy to continue living in, in, in the area, um, there, there was a sizable portion that could not wait to get out, you know? Um, and, but then, and that's everywhere. I mean, Montgomery currently has uh, where I live near Montgomery. Montgomery has a real problem with, uh, younger people moving away and they're the city as a whole is trying to figure out ways to, you know, keep these people, you know, or, or bring them back even. And, uh, it, it, those people moving away can cause real problems. Um, But even, you know, and then warring against that though, you know, you talk about like keeping the, the flavor of the town. Um, I remember when I was in grad school, uh, I I went to Troy in Troy and uh, years ago, love street in Troy was where uh, the black community had all their honky tonks. And, uh, it was uh, they basically the city ended up closing all of them down because uh, the city of Troy, the thought of a black person having a good time was just totally intolerable. How dare yeah. they? Um, well, so cut pan um, to 2012 or so uh, a young guy out of, I, I think he went to Troy, but he was from Atlanta. Um, young black man, uh, tried to open a hookah bar on love street. Didn't know the history at all. Just knew that, Hey, there's a building here. Um, I want to open Troy doesn't have a hookah bar. It doesn't have a lot of things for young people to do. Hookah is getting more and more popular. Hey, this is perfect. And you would have thought that the city would have jumped at the chance. Um, but they didn't, they actually ended up uh, making Troy a no, uh, you could no longer smoke. Uh, they, 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 Passed an ordinance like no more smoking in bars and places like that to oh purposely gosh. to purposely foil this business, you know. Oh. So that and you know because it was part of it was uh you know very much that oh it's 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 a young black man trying to open a uh, a place of enjoyment on Love Street. Doesn't he know the history? Oh, we'll go back. We'll go back to those terrible times, you know. And it's it's it. it you know, tons of racism, yeah. but also, I mean, you just run into that all over the South that people don't, they're so scared of losing the flavor of what they have that they shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, that's interesting. That's another thing that I ran into that um, I thought I, I actually, I included an author's note about this in the the back of my second book, because I thought there was a possibility people might've thought that I was trying to utilize something like this, but okay. Basically what I, um, what kind of inspired the story of Folk Haven, a part of it, that whole uh, making a dam and water to cover up dark magic was I saw a newspaper article about Lake Lanier um, and Lake Lanier, there was a death on Lake Lanier and in this article and deaths on lakes are not uncommon people will do stupid things when they're on lakes and drinking and whatnot yeah but the article mentioned that lake lanier has a higher mortality rate than any other lake in the area and there's not a clear reason as to why and so my mind said ghosts magic oh yeah (laughs) so so that, that immediately popped into my mind. And so that's kind of how I came up with this lore of uh, this evil, dark magic that had to be covered up. But in doing more research on Lake Lanier and other lakes, I found out that the creation of Lake Lanier was uh, 
an issue because there used to be a town called Oscarville that Lake Lanier covered. And the reason that Oscarville was empty was it was a black town, mm-hmm. uh, black residents, and they had been driven out um, because of racial and yeah. racially driven things. And so the town was empty and then the lake was built. And basically this Lake Lanier now covers that history. And so I thought uh, there are people much smarter than me that have done stories on basically these drowned towns and they're all over the country. They're not oh, just yeah. in the South, oh, but that was something. Yeah. yeah. Lake Martin, same thing. Lake Martin had a uh, thriving black community. It was a town called, uh, I think I'm, I always say the name wrong, but it's like Kalijah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, same thing. They, uh, they built the dam there because the only people it would have really affected were African-Americans and, the state didn't care about that yeah. so they that's why they did what they did um yeah so when so, yeah when, when i saw that i was like oh gosh i don't want people to think that i'm trying to uh usurp that history and uh make it my it was just kind of it was a weird coincidence that yeah. kind of the lore that i made reflected that so that's uh you know note to authors it's it's when you i didn't want to ignore that and uh, I, I wanted to address it so that's why I, I included an author's note about it um, but this yeah so that that was just interesting thing that I found out during the research process and that's kind of like uh, another great thing about not necessarily being a new person to the area I know that I know very little and so I kind of dig deeper into the research than um, just to cover all my bases. Right. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of, for people who don't read romance, paranormal romance, things like that, there's just a, I think there's a lot of assumptions made, you know? And, uh, like I said, I don't read a lot, but I've read some, uh, I've read some Nora Roberts, uh, that my fiance got me to read and, you know, there is some incredibly rich world building that goes on in these books that I think the perception for those who don't read it, is like, Oh, it's just, it's just love stories, you know, yeah. but no, like, I mean, there's some incredibly rich lore going into a lot of these books that I think people are missing out on just because they kind of hand wave it away. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the author, Helen Huang, she did, she does contemporary romance. She writes um, uh, the Uh, kiss quotient and stuff Uh, she had a quote I don't remember exactly word for word but what she said uh, I really liked was that the reason that uh, romances are popular is knowing that there's going to be a happily ever after a happy ending a lot of times means that readers can feel comfortable connecting deeper to the emotions of the characters because Mm. there is that comfort of knowing that it will be resolved so if something really dark or really just heart-wrenching is happening in the story you might if you don't know if it's going to be resolved at the end you might kind of shy away from connecting to it but the knowledge that it will hopefully be resolved in a satisfying way is like okay i will be miserable with this character right now (laughs) (laughs) knowing that you i I am trusting you to comfort me by the end of this book and so i i thought that resonated with me as a reader because i'm a big romance reader that i i thought i was like yeah there are times when i'm reading a romance novel and i am just sobbing but i'm okay with it because i know by the end uh this will have been resolved in some way yeah, that's something I'd never considered, you know, that, and that's really fascinating how the, not necessarily knowing the ending, but knowing that it's going to come to a good resolution gives you the safety to really throw yourself into it. Like I, that, man, that's, that's neat. That's a neat thing <laughs> to think about. Yeah, um, yeah. It's something to consider for people yeah. who have been waffling about trying out a romance. That might be something yeah. that would appeal to them. Well, you know, I think that's like, so the whole cozy fantasy thing is really blowing up these days and like cozy mysteries and stuff like that. And I, I, I suspect it's kind of a similar thing, you know, with these cozy, these cozy fantasies and mysteries that, it, you know, 
the stakes are probably never that high and it's going to end up all right. And man, people are just gobbling that stuff up right now. They're going all in. We all need a little comfort in our lives right now. Oh, don't we? Jeez, don't we? Um, so, all right. So you, you were talking about how you do a lot of research on these things. Uh, and the, the kind of the cliche, cliche question is, where do you get your ideas? And I, where I like to come at that is, it's less where do you get your ideas and more how much do you draw on your own life that you okay. work into your books? Or do you try and keep a clear separation there? I, I, I think I, I mentioned it briefly before. A lot of times how I will come up with an idea is I, I will be or potentially be in a, a slightly weird situation. And then my imagination will just shoot off with possibilities for what could happen next. And so I would yeah. say a lot of times I am the catalyst for a story, but then it just, <laughs> it goes wild without me. Yeah. So like, for example, I haven't, I haven't published this book, uh, still kind of waffling between going traditional publishing or um, publishing, self-publishing where I was, I was in a new town. I had just moved out in, to Colorado and uh, I didn't know anyone in the area. And I was, trying to figure out just ways to meet people because my introverted nature, I, I didn't really know how to do it. Yeah. So I saw a posting at the local library where there was going to be a uh, sip and stitch. So people who knit Ooh. and want to drink at the same time. And of course the alliteration drew me in. Oh yeah. Uh, and so I looked up the place that it was supposed to be held at and it was called the, the Billy goat bar. And when I looked at it online, I, I was sure that I must have gotten the place wrong because it looked like a biker bar. And so <laughs> in my mind, I, I just thought, what is going to happen if I show up at this biker bar with my knitting supplies? And <laughs> it's just a bunch of biker people and me with my knitting supplies. And so that was the germ for a story that ended up being this whole manuscript I have for a biker werewolf romance where basically the meet cute is this person misunderstands where they're supposed to go for a knitting group and they run into a whole werewolf biker gang oh, and I love so that. <laughs> so that's kind of my uh, a lot of times my idea process is I will I guess my imagination tries to make my average life more interesting and then <laughs> I just create characters that fit better into that scenario than I would yeah, no, that's uh, the idea of the, you know, the the biker bar with the brusque guys and whatnot it makes me think of, uh, I, you may have seen this, I don't know, but uh, there's definitely a strong trend these days of like uh, uh, kind of older, these gruff biker guys with tiny, tiny little dogs. Um <laughs> My that dad sounds was amazing. My dad was one, you know, he had a Harley, uh, him and my stepmom would go, uh, go ride and whatnot. Um, but they also, you know, as well as deals, stepmom gets a tiny teacup Yorkie and, oh yeah, that's, that's her dog. But where does the dog sit every night watching TV in dad's lap? You know, <laughs> he's always feeding her little snippets of popcorn or whatnot. And so it was, you think, you know, bearded biker guy riding down the road and tucked into a bag is a, is a teacup Yorkie, you know? <laughs> and yeah. And, and I, I love, I love seeing that, um, that dynamic in stories where you have this character that based off their appearance, you think they're going to be one way. And then they have this funny little dog or this yeah. weird hobby and, and it just kind of turns the reader on their head and they have to rethink their assumptions about them. And yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah. Um, so uh, I see, you know, drawing with sirens and selkies and things like that, definitely a lot of more like uh, European history or European mythology and stuff like that. Do you work in any Southern folklore into it or are you kind of just keeping it more, uh, I guess more world, world I, fantasy. So that's that's actually yeah. It's a I haven't yet, but uh, basically I haven't because I didn't really consider necessarily that there. That uh, shame on me that I didn't think so much about. I guess my 
my experience with mythical creatures is that more broad European based uh, kind of mythical creatures. And uh, in my now that I'm expanding the series of uh, writing more and more books, I am looking for different creatures from around the world. But in the next book, I'm planning on having a, a, a Kappa, which is from Japan yeah. and yeah. Uh, makes so much sense yet yeah, to look into Southern uh, lore and mythology. And especially because one of the aspects of my books is that there's this uh, contention of when two mythical creatures procreate and have a kid that kid is considered a monster and oh. so i would yeah i would love to dig into uh southern mythology and if there are creatures that i could potentially have because i have a lotho lotho a leviathan yeah. um, that is labeled as a monster and so that's it's not something that i've done yet but since this is going to be this town, I plan on have, filling it with different types of mythical creatures. I would love to dig more into that and just learn about it as an outsider. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I, I love to see the blending of different mythologies from all all over. Because I mean, that's I mean, that's the South, you know. I mean, uh, yeah. other than the Native American population, which has largely been you know forced to leave the South, uh, uh, we're all you know we're all imports here you know we've all and yeah. everyone brought their mythology with them and so there's no reason why they shouldn't all be blending into this you know homogeny homogenous group you know so yeah. um all right so one thing i wanted so the first half i kind of gear it more towards the readers in the back half i like to gear it more towards the writers so yeah. i'd love to hear about your writing process are you more of a so i know you where you, you get, you know, you, you, you get that image in your head of like, oh, this is a cool scene and you build out from there. Are you more of a plotter? Are you more of a discovery writer? And like, typically, how long does it take you to write a book? Okay, yeah. So I would definitely say that I am more of a plotter in that what what I do, my favorite part of the writing process is the brainstorming part when I'm mm. basically building the book almost like a movie in my mind. Yeah. And so what I do to keep track of all that is I usually open a Google Doc and I will write out the plot of the book in almost a narrative form as if I was telling someone what happened in the book I'll have mm -hmm. and she does this and he does this and they say this and then and it's kind of all a he said he said she said just bullet points of where I think kind of the scenes will be and that outline usually ends up being somewhere between 6,000 to 10,000 words okay. so someone might even consider that a very rough draft of yeah the yeah book. yeah um, and then once I have that, I, I really like the tool Scrivener because mm -hmm. I can uh, divide everything up into scenes. So I will transfer chunks from that outline into the little note section on Scrivener and I will have everything uh, in scenes. And then I try to, I tend to start writing in chronological order, but if I have just a really good uh, dialogue or something pop into my mind, I will, I will jump between scenes for where I'm inspired yeah. with the tendency to try and work from beginning to end. And I can write about 15,000 words a week. Nice. And so with the Folkhaven books, the now, now the Folkhaven books, uh, other than the first one, which was a bit shorter, they're going to be about 70,000 words mm -hmm. per book. So I can pump out a rough draft in five weeks. And then I give myself a few weeks for editing. So I would say that I could create a manuscript that I feel comfortable sending to my editor. These are self-published books, so I hire an editor. Um, yeah. So in about two months is if, yeah. if that's the only thing that I'm working on. Right. Uh, but sometimes I get my uh, an editor from the small press that I'm working with will send me a book that I, I need to go over the edits and stuff. So a lot of times I'll get interrupted, but if yeah. I'm just working on it, start to finish. Uh, well, then if you include the brainstorming, that might be about a week. So a little over two months to create something that's ready to send to an editor. So um, I give, 
I do a lot of panels at cons and workshops. And the one I give the most is uh, how, how to get published. And I, I break down, you know, traditional per- publishing versus small press publishing versus self-publishing and uh, kind of, you know, the pros and cons of each and why you should choose X over Y, you know, and so what something you said earlier got me interested. And, you know, again, anyone listening to this, there's no, there's no right or wrong answers to any of these. Every answer is specific to the person. Um, but you were saying that you weren't sure if you're going to go with, with a book, if you're going to try and go traditional publishing or if you're going to go the self-publishing route. And so how do you weigh that? How do you, you decide, you know, this is a book I'm going to try and self-publish versus this is what I'm going to try and traditionally publish. What's the, the metric there? Yeah. So with that, uh, one thing is cost. <laughs> I, yeah. when it comes to self-publishing, it's definitely that um, big upfront cost. And so that book that I was talking about, the biker werewolf one, that mm. right now sits at about 97,000 words. So that is mm. a bit longer. And the editor that I work with, that would cost uh, above a thousand dollars to yeah. get edited. And then I like to pay for a nice cover that could be around $300. Yep. So that is, is the question is, do I feel like I have that money to spend? And mm-hmm. when do I think I would be able to earn that back by? So then, but when it comes to, um, so I do have a literary agent that I can send manuscripts to and uh, she will shop them around. But the question is, do I feel like the story is appealing to traditional publishers and, and small publishers? And when it comes to paranormal romance, it's pretty hard to break into the traditionally published market. That one, mm-hmm. they, I feel like it's, it's pretty um, indie driven at the yeah. moment. They're like the big names sell very well, but they're already big. They're the big yeah. names. And so they kind of suck all the air out of the room. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then, but then there's the option of going with a small press where I wouldn't have to deal with the upfront costs, but I would still have to do most of the marketing myself. And I wouldn't have the immediate uh, numbers to tell how well my marketing is doing. Right. And you lose out a bit on um, creative control. Um, Luckily, with that that book, Fire, Magic, and Ice Cream, the first cover that my that was published with a small publishing house, and the first cover they sent me, I hope they're not if they're listening to it. I I love them so much, but I hated that cover, the first cover they yeah. sent me. But they were great when I went back to them and said, uh, "Hey, I don't like." anything about this cover (laughs) please go back to the drawing board and I even I found the so if if you look at that cover I found that cover model I found the background and I I found like a hand holding an ice cream cone and I was I I sent all those images I was like I don't know how to mash these all together but this is kind of what I'm looking for so that was even working with a small press there's still kind of this onus to do a lot of the work. And so that's just right now, my agent does have that biker werewolf um, manuscript and she is doing around to publishers because I figure it doesn't necessarily hurt. I do have other ideas and other things that I like, I'm working on the folk Haven series right now. So that's, it's something that it's not the only manuscript I have. If I only had one manuscript, it would make me nervous to send it to my agent and mm-hmm. like cross my fingers and hope it gets sold because right. I just be twiddling my thumbs. But the fact that I feel confident I can continue to write stories, even while things are getting shopped around. And if it doesn't work out with her, then I can start budgeting to get that edited and get a cover design and uh, do it myself. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, the questions that I will cycle through when it comes to deciding if I want to send a manuscript to my agent or work on getting it done myself. Yeah. Now I, I, I'm in kind of a very similar position. Like I, now granted, I don't have an agent, but um, I have, I have one manuscript that I am 
in theory, shopping around to agents. Um, it'd probably go a lot better if I would actually send it to some agents to consider. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after the last round of rejections, I, I've kind of put on the back burner. Um, but uh, I, you know, it's kind of the same boat. Like I, the, uh, I, I was fortunate to get mentored on my current series. And I, you know, I basically started asking, like, do you think that a traditional publisher would touch this? And he was like, no, probably not. Um, it's not really the kind of stuff that they put out. He's like, so small presser self-publish. And so that's like, you know what, I, I have the time and, uh, ability to figure out most of the stuff. And, you know, I've, I've saved up a little money so I can pay to get the stuff done that I, I can't do myself. Um, and, but yeah, that's, and that is something I caution folks with small presses is it, if all you're trying to, if success for you is getting your name published by someone else, then small presses a lot of times are a great way to do that. Never pay anyone to publish you vanity presses yeah. of the devil. But I would caution you if you're looking at like long-term uh career type things sometimes a lot of times a small press doesn't really offer anything that you can't do yourself or pay someone to do yourself because like like you were saying i mean even with traditional publishers you know these days agents uh before they'll take you on they look at your social media because publishers want to know that you're going to be actively you know working to sell your book um because with traditional publishers unless you're very lucky that your marketing budget from Harper Collins is going to be $0 until you've sold a few thousand copies, then they might be like, oh, okay, people like this, maybe we'll put some money behind it. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it, it, but that said, there are some small presses out there that like, I would recommend like fall staff books. I I'm always quick to recommend them. They, I think they do a really good job. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you write the kind of stuff that they publish, I would definitely um, consider going with them. I've, I've submitted to them before. Uh, and so just do your, do your research and really think things through. There's, a, yeah. there, there's no rush on any of this because spoiler, um, the publishing process, unless you self-publish is a lengthy process, no matter what. So if you're counting on that book selling a million copies so you can eat next week, you're just going to go hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. The, the timing is definitely, that's, that's another thing. The whole, that's, that's why I, I like the, the hybrid model. It's, it's when I don't feel comfortable spending money on my stuff, then I can send it to someone else to deal with. But when I start getting anxious about how long it's taking for a book to come out, I, I can then publish something myself and I can yeah. do it at whatever rate I can produce a product at. So yeah, it's kind of, uh, when one, when one path is making me anxious, I can switch over to the other one and focus on that for a little while to calm myself. And then when something about that path makes me anxious, I can switch over to the other one. And yeah. so they, they soothe me in those ways. And, you know, that, that's something where we're fortunate these days, because there was very much a time that if you were self-publishing, traditional publishers wouldn't touch you, you yeah. know. Um, but now there are increasingly more and more authors doing that hybrid model. And I, I really think that that's, I mean, look at, uh, I mean, the big news of course was Brandon Sanderson, you oh, know, <laughs> uh, breaking kicks, like basically curb stomping every Kickstarter record ever for, <laughs> for him to self-publish four of his novels, you know? Um, and he's yeah. one of the biggest names in fantasy, you know, tr any traditional publisher would have happily snapped up those books. Um, yeah. But he decided to, and he's not, he's not breaking his contracts with any of the other publishers. He's still going to be putting out books with uh, his, his traditional publishers, but he's also doing this. And uh, you know, I wish I was him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also, I, I found it really interesting. I, I didn't even realize that she self published this book, but um, if you know, Janine Frost, she does the night huntress series mm -hmm. um, New York times bestselling author, long uh, paranormal urban fantasy romance series and all of the books were from the perspective of the female protagonist and uh just i think over covid to calm her down something she found therapeutic was she wrote the first book from the male protagonist bones his perspective mm. and she 
again, like a New York Times bestselling author, she asked her agent to like shop this to publishers and all the publishers said, no, uh, you, you published the first few chapters of this on your website and had it for free for a while. This, this is not going to sell. So she eventually decided to self-publish that book. And I'm pretty sure I, I would have to double check, but I think it made the USA Today bestsellers and she so is that too sometimes traditional publishers pass on things that later on it is clear it was a ridiculous thing to pass on oh oh yeah oh yeah um all right so let's say someone's listening to this podcast right now they're uh they're writing their first novel they're really struggling um what is what is maybe the best piece of advice you'd give to someone who's trying to get that first book across the finish line I would say, well, okay. So what I would say is that um, don't get distracted by shiny ideas. Um, A lot of times I will, every author will be like 75% through their book and a new idea will pop into their head and they decide to set aside the one that they're working on and uh, go for that new idea because it's exciting and, and yeah. fun and it, it has to be better than the the piece of crap that you're working on now. I'm sitting um, right here. You don't have to talk about <laughs> me like that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just calling you out in front of this whole audience. Um, what I, I recommend is don't, don't completely forget the new idea. Definitely write it down, but just finish a book, even if it is a load of crap. I have multiple manuscripts that no one will ever be allowed to read ever because they're so bad. But (laughs) once I finish them, then you know that you can write a massive amount of words that resemble a story. So that intimidation factor is gone. And then you can put it aside and maybe one year one point in the future you'll want to tinker with it and work on it and maybe you'll write a few more crap books like that that you don't want to touch but eventually you will get to one that is again not going to be perfect by the time you're done it but it is something that you will think is worth tinkering on and editing and making into a product to sell. So I would say it's kind of like, how do you finish a book? Well, you finish it, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I would say that my writing took off when I one demanded that I write and demanded that I stopped expecting everything to be very good. I, my undergraduate degree was in writing and I always felt like my professors expected a literary fiction type content from Mm -hmm. the students. And I think they, I don't think that was uh, inaccurate for me to think that, but it made me very intimidated to write something that wasn't that, to write genre fiction, because I had in my head that if I have any type of fantasy element in it, that somehow knocks down the quality of the writing and so I I had to like overdo how good the text had to be I I guess to make a vampire story worth it and once I realized that one literary fiction is not better than genre fiction exactly and, and two you can write complete crap in the beginning and that's perfectly fine because you always have editing time you can tinker with it later and make the words better Um, that that's when I started getting hundreds and then thousands of words during my writing sessions. It's kind of that, um, being okay with writing crap. (laughs) No, it was, it was probably not till my like third book, uh, that I had finished that, um, I came to learn about myself that, uh, about 60% into any book that I read, uh, I'm, or that I write that I'm convinced that this is just absolute crap. It's the <laughs> worst. I can't believe I'm writing this. How, you know, this is, I'm wasting my time. I'm going to end up just having to throw this away. It's so bad. And then, you know, I'll finish it still thinking that, like, Oh man, this is, this is crap. And then put it down. And I like when I can, um, I like to put something away for a few months before I'll take another look at it. Yeah. And every time, I'm like, 
I go into like, man, this was so awful. Ugh, this is going to be painful. And then I read it and yes, it's got flaws, but it's like, wow, okay. This, this was nowhere near as bad <laughs> as I, as I thought it was, you know? Yeah. And so it, there's definitely an, an, an element of that to a lot of this. Yeah. Because there are definitely, there, there are the scenes that inspired you to write them in the beginning and they're still there and maybe they're surrounded by 50% bad scenes, but you can, yeah, you can always fix those up and change them. And so, yeah, revisiting the ones that just set you off in the first place that yeah. it, it can rejuice you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. And again, we, we were talking about Brandon Sanderson a minute ago. I think he wrote, I think it was like 10 novels before he ever got accepted. And he's one of the biggest names in fantasy now. So, yeah. you know, if you, if you get, you know, 60% done with that first book and you're like, Oh, this is no, um, this is awful. Just stick with it. Just stick with it. Um, yes. If nothing else is to chalk up a win for yourself, you know, to actually hold a entire book that you've written. It's such an amazing feeling that it makes the previous weeks, months, and years, uh, however long it took you to write it actually, you know, feel, feel like it was worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I, uh, I have a background in music industry. Uh, music is one of my great passions. And so I always, I'm always interested to hear, uh, when you write, do you listen to music? Do you listen to like white noise? Do you listen to nothing? Like what, what, what's the, uh, sonic ambiance going on around you when you write? Yeah. So I, I cannot listen to music with lyrics because I will sing along to the lyrics and not write the story. <laughs> so yeah. I can't, I can't put those on. Although I do. So because I live in a, a an area that uh, is far away from coffee shops and I write best at coffee shops and my, the ones that I like are about half an hour away. Mm -hmm. I will drive to a coffee shop and on the way to the coffee shop, I will often listen to country music uh, really like the sappy love story yeah. country music on the way there to get in the mood for writing romance and i'll yeah. be brainstorming my scenes as i'm as i'm driving to the coffee shop with that music on and then when i'm actually sitting down to write um i sometimes uh, i'm good with just the coffee shop kind of chatter turning into white noise behind me mm -hmm. sometimes i'll listen to instrumental country music or instrumental love songs or mm -hmm. i'll listen to fire noises where it's just like a crackling okay. fire yeah. yeah yeah well you know what happens when you play country music backwards right i i don't know you, you get your uh you get your house back your wife back and your dog back oh yeah, of course <laughs> <laughs> no uh but no it's funny you say that uh i normally it if I'm writing my rural fantasy series, I have a playlist specifically for that, that I listen to, but anything else I write, I have some instrumental, uh, it's this German doom band, the <laughs> like doom jazz fusion band that I listen to called born under Clovergore. Um, but that said, uh, I do also like, I, I've never written in a coffee shop. Uh, shockingly, there's not a great coffee cop coffee shop culture in uh rural uh south central yeah. alabama um <laughs> and also i was raised mormon so i, I don't drink coffee uh, i mean i'm not mormon now but i i just never picked up the habit uh but um i do you know youtube has these like the sound of a coffee shop video right, going yeah. that you can play and so i'll play that and like playing the crackling sound of a fire i do that all the time like throw on like rainy moods and then the sound of the fire and then like coffee shop noises, like all that blending together. It's a, it's a good time. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I also, um, sometimes coffee shops pretty much 90% of the time work perfectly for me. I thought while I was writing that book, fire magic and ice cream, Hey, maybe I can get this to work with an ice cream shop. That was a mistake because I went to this ice cream shop. I got myself an ice cream. I had the shop to myself for about 10 minutes. And then a family came in with a yeah. young child and they let the young child just crawl all over the shop. And oh. the child crawled under my table and I'm writing a romance novel here. And I, yeah. was, I was just like, okay, I guess this scene is going to be about some birth control because <laughs> <laughs> this is not working for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. Plus, I mean, plus, you know, then your, your, your keyboard gets sticky. 
you know, it's, yeah. it's just, it's just a mess. <laughs> so not every shop will work, but yeah, coffee, coffee shops, they are, I, I'm going to be asking an accountant if I'm able to write off the amount of coffee <laughs> that I buy. <laughs> yeah. Have you, uh, have you set up, tried to see if any of the, like your coffee shops will let you uh, set up and sell your books at them? I, I haven't asked. I'm, I'm, I'm so bad at asking about uh, uh, it. Yeah. Well, but I, I I always encourage, like, I, I tell people that, like, as a creative, the thing that's going to make you a success is, A, you know, using your creativity to produce, whether it be the books or the music or whatever it is you produce. But it's also using that creativity to kind of get into some spaces that maybe other people aren't. So, like, mm-hmm. I've sold my books at uh, breweries before. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I, I don't know, maybe if you told me, Hey, I wrote this book in this, uh, in this coffee shop, would you let me come sell it? Oh, maybe they, maybe they'd say yes. You know, you know, if they say no, it's not the end of the world. That's no, that's a really good point. Yeah. I, I just, I, I sneak in there. I write my books and I leave, but yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a very good idea. I feel like I, I mean, the baristas are learning my order and my name. So that's just the next step in the relationship. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, uh, John Harkness is a, a literary hero of mine, and he talks about how no matter how quickly you write, you cannot write as fast as people read. And so because of that, there's enough love to go around. Authors should always be helping each other, promoting each other. So to that end, two-part question. One, who is your author hero? And two, who is an author or authors uh, that you think we should be checking out that maybe we aren't? Okay. Yeah. So I would say that one of my author heroes is Penny Reed. She is a contemporary romance author that she, she self publishes her books. And I feel like she, she has written, she's almost made a little, empire for herself. Uh, I'm going to be publishing a book within her universe. So mm. I'm, I'm writing kind of in her universe. And I just think that uh, she's, I, she's one of those people that when, when I meet her in person, I'm, I'm going to have trouble speaking because I'm just so intimidated by how, how well she has run her author business. She, yeah. she writes these amazing quirky books, but then also she again, she's created this universe based around her books that other authors um, we can write in and kind of feed off her audience, which is fantastic. It's a a really good uh, chance for us. But also whenever there is a a big issue that kind of comes up in the world of romance, like there was, uh, I don't know if you heard about Cocky Gate um, a while back, but it was where Oh, you have. Oh, that's, uh-uh. It was basically where an author tried to copyright the word cocky and so and then started serving um, other authors who had that word in their title notices what? saying they had to change. Yeah, it was this whole thing. If you look up cocky gate, there is a whole oh, thing. About I, it. Uh, but, my, um, the other podcast that I do is called Books, Beards, Booze, and we cover uh, book news. So this will be getting discussed uh, on oh, there. Yes. It, there, real there are a lot of people there are great takes on it, but part of, uh, what happened, like this actually went to court and everything, but, um, so this author, Penny Reed, she, uh, and a bunch of other authors got together an anthology called the cocktails that, um, all the proceeds went to the authors that were getting basically harassed by this one author. And then Mm. also to some court fees, uh, for, um, people going to court with this woman so that like yeah she does things like that where if she feels like there's kind of some type of injustice happening within the romance writing community she uh will step in and do what she can to help and so i just i'm very awed by her and i'm super excited to work with her so i definitely recommend penny reed's book she has a um a uh, series called the winston brothers that's set in a fictional town in tennessee so we've got um, some Southern small town there. Yeah. And then I would also say um, when it comes to like paranormal magic stuff, uh, there's an author, I think she's, she's doing pretty well in the self-publishing realm uh, better than me. Uh, <laughs> Juliet Cross. She has a series called stay a spell and those books, the first one is Wolf Gone Wild. And it's just, they're 
they're funny and uh, steamy and it's got witches and werewolves and uh, grim reapers and it's set in uh, New Orleans. So that's a really good um, like Southern magical series that um, what, I'm what was, it, what was their name again? Uh, Juliet Cross. Okay. And that's her series Stay a Spell. And the first yeah. book is Wolf Gone Wild. Love it. Love it. So, all right. Uh, as we wrap this up, why don't you take a moment, tell us uh, where can we find you, like website, social media, that sort of thing, and where can we pick up your books? Sure. Okay. So I, you can find my website at laurenconnellyromance.com. That Lauren Connolly Romance is my handle for Instagram, for uh, Facebook, and probably the um, social media that I'm on the most is TikTok. <laughs> so yeah. luckily I, I, that, that is just the one that kind of speaks to me the most. And so I, I put up uh, book teasers a lot and then some funny videos with me. And so that if you want to taste for what's in my books, you can see some short TikTok videos that'll give you a feel for it. And my books now I have my contemporary romances, they are all sold wide. So they are yeah. on pretty much all the, the book retailers, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, uh, all of those. And my paranormal romances right now, I am trying out Kindle Unlimited. So those are yeah. all going to be on Amazon and in KU. So that's the, the Folk Haven series and the Fire Magic and Ice Cream. But also I, if Readers, I also have a newsletter where I give away two free books. So if readers want to sign up there, I'm also going to have the option for the books that I'm publishing in KU before they get published. I'm going to do just a couple weeks where they're sold wide. So if anyone's not a KU Amazon reader, if they sign up for my newsletter, they can keep track of when that happens. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Um, Lauren, it has been uh, a delight having you on. This is, I feel like this has been a great interview. Lots of, lots of good stuff here for the readers and writers out there. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Good. Well, all right. Uh, faithful listeners out there till next time. Uh, y'all be good now. taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would, you know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.